Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. Anel Shaleen will give us the rundown on Saudi Arabia, and James Meadway will analyze the political crisis in Britain. Saudi Arabia is in the news. Well, it's often in the news, usually for some outrage or other. But the latest headline grabber is their decision early this month to cut its oil output dramatically in order to drive up the price. The move was denounced in the U.S. and elsewhere in the so-called West for adding to stagflationary pressures and providing aid and comfort to Russia. Why did they do it? Here to answer that question and several others about this reactionary and brutal kingdom is Anel Shaleen, a fellow specializing in the Middle East with the Quincy Institute. Anel Shaleen. The oil cuts. We're uh, hearing a lot of denunciation of Saudi Arabia for effectively siding with Russia in the war in Ukraine. How do you read what they're up to? It's not entirely surprising that Saudi Arabia and other oil producers would like the price of oil to be as high as possible. The scale of the production cuts and the timing are part of why this seems to be about more than simply trying to keep that price higher. So specifically, the fact that the production cuts are 2 million barrels per day, that is the maximum of what Saudi Arabia is able to do. Just to be clear, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are two of the only oil producers in the world that are actually able to do that, that can either ramp up production or scale it back. Whereas somewhere like the United States, for example, where our oil production facilities are the property of private companies, and so they are beholden to their shareholders, and they have to maximize profit. So shareholders would not be willing to have U.S. facilities scale back production for political reasons or other reasons. And furthermore, just the nature of of the American oil industry, our oil doesn't come shooting out of the ground the way Saudi and Emirati oil does, you know. My impression is that all you have to do is stick a stake in the ground and oil will flow in Saudi Arabia. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that that's how it used to be in the United States when oil was first discovered, you know, in places like Texas and California. But it's no longer like that. Shale oil extraction is a much more labor-intensive process, whereas the Saudis in particular have some of the easiest and cheapest oil to extract. Okay, so um, the cuts, what are they trying to do? As I was saying, it's not irrational for the Saudis to be behaving in this way, but the timing is interesting. Just prior to the U.S. midterms, you know, we know that Mohammed bin Salman is a big fan of former President Trump, gave millions of dollars to his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And we know that MBS would really like to see Trump or a Trump uh, affiliated administration back in the White House. He's not a fan of Joe Biden, didn't like when Biden called him a pariah, is still, you know, although Biden did humble himself and go and meet with him in July in Jeddah and had that infamous fist bump occurred, uh, MBS has has not really forgiven Biden and, and continues to prefer a, a president like someone like Donald Trump, who did everything possible to to accede to MBS's demands and protected him from any kind of accountability that Congress tried to impose following the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Essentially, although it is, again, not surprising that Saudi Arabia might do something like this, it's, it is the timing and the scale that really makes it seem like MBS is trying or it is one of his motivations would be to try to get the Dems out of control of Congress and thereby make it more likely that Donald Trump might decide to run in the next presidential election. It's not like Democratic administrations have been mean to Saudi Arabia. What is the root of this uh, preference? Well, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I think part of this goes back to thinking about the U.S.-Saudi relationship over time. Of course, there have been ups and downs. But in general, the Saudi oil policy has been to maintain price stability. This is not only about the relationship with the U.S., but just Saudi Arabia's desire to be the sort of producer of last resort, um, which does have that capability to ramp up or scale down production as a means of maintaining price stability. 
However, under MBS, we've seen um, much more willingness to not necessarily have price stability be the driver of, of oil policy. For example, during 2020, when we saw demand for oil collapse, and as a result, the, the price really tanked, Russia and Saudi Arabia embarked on a price war, each of them pursuing lower and lower prices. And that was when we saw the price of oil fall into the negative range for the first time in history. Trump was president and he threatened to withdraw all troops from Saudi Arabia and, and embark on other kinds of means of punishing the Saudis if they didn't blink and, and start pursuing policies that would drive the price of oil back up because American oil producers were really hurting as a result. MBS is not your grandpa's Saudi ruler. Previous Saudi rulers could be counted on to try to maintain price stability in a way that, that MBS is, is not necessarily interested in doing. It used to be that uh, Saudi Arabia's pricing goal was to keep it high enough to make a lot of money, but keep it low enough so it doesn't encourage alternatives. Is that still part of their thinking? You're right. So there, there is a sweet spot there, as you said, high enough for profits, but not so high as to drive down demand or encourage greater pursuit of alternatives. No, I think at this point, the, the again, the fact that the Saudis decided to cut by 2 million barrels per day, this really is unprecedented um, and, is, and is the very upper limit of what they're capable of doing. Although what is interesting is that although we saw the price per barrel increase following that October 5th announcement, we've subsequently seen a downward trend in prices such that they're about what they were, I believe, before the, the announcement of those production cuts. This is partly due to fears of a global recession that could be sparked by, by very high oil prices. Also, weak demand from China, which is going into another um, COVID shutdown. And so MBS may find that he's sort of overcooked his own goose here. And actually, the price of oil isn't going to be as high. We've heard Saudi Arabia quite publicly state that they would like the price per barrel to be uh, $100. That would be their sweet spot. And at the moment, it, it's trading uh, well below that and, and may continue to fall. Is there anything about the post-carbon world? Do they fear that they will have what will someday be a worthless asset? Yes, that is certainly part of it. And that does get to your point about the Saudis wanting to make sure they're not keeping the price so high that they are driving demand for alternatives. Though, as I said, the fact that MBS announced this sort of maximum production cut would seem to indicate that he is more motivated at the moment by political concerns so not only perhaps trying to hurt the Dems in the midterms, but also to try to hedge against Russia, that MBS is, is not really interested in antagonizing Putin at the moment, that he sees in an increasingly multipolar world, countries like Saudi Arabia are not likely to join in lockstep with US preferences, and they are going to try to hedge against the other big global powers, so China and Russia, and therefore behave in a manner that is not always in keeping with what the U.S. wants, but instead is kind of trying to walk a, a middle line between these various countries' preferences. MBS himself, we talk of him as the maximum leader, but uh, the Saudi system is pretty complicated. How does he fit in with this enormous royal family and the rest of uh, the Saudi elite? Yes, he is crown prince. His father, King Salman, remains the official power. Um, but in general, we have seen MBS pursue a very aggressive approach to sidelining his rivals. So at this point, it is really himself and two of his full brothers. So Abdelaziz bin Salman is the oil minister, for example. He and his brothers have really centralized control in their own hands in a way that historically, as you said, we tended to see um, a ruling coalition of various sons of the original King Abdelaziz bin Saud, up until this point, it is only the sons of Ibn Saud that have ruled Saudi Arabia. And so MBS, when he ostensibly takes the throne, will be the first grandson of Ibn Saud to rule. But as, as you pointed out, historically, we saw various aspects of the Saudi government, whether it was the security sector, the oil sector, various powerful princes ruling different governorates, for example, and sort of balancing power between them. But under MBS, we've seen an unprecedented consolidation of that power. He has put several of his rivals uh, under house arrest, or they are living in exile outside of the kingdom for fear that they would face detention or, or worse if they were to return home. 
I read a piece of yours from several years ago in which you're saying that uh, MBS would like to soften Saudi Arabia's image around the world. And it's really not so good now with uh, retrograde gender relations and public beheadings. Um, what, what's up with that project? Is, is, this, uh, is he making any progress on it? After killing Khashoggi, I mean, he's got a lot of work cut out for him. You're absolutely right. This is a key part of MBS's goal, um, which is called Vision 2030, which is to try to modernize the Saudi economy, open up Saudi Arabia for greater investment, and as you put it, soften the Saudi image abroad. What's interesting is, on the one hand, he has made some progress there, and he ha- he retains support among many young Saudis. Um, this is a generation, the millennial generation of Saudis, who many, many, many of them studied abroad, who therefore experienced life in the United States in particular, in the UK or Australia. And when they returned to Saudi Arabia, were really fairly frustrated with the highly restrictive gender rules and norms. And so we have seen this generation welcoming the changes that MBS has implemented. At the same time, he has really increased internal repression, the scale of arrests and the suppression of any kind of internal dissent or critique is higher even than what occurred in 2011 during the Arab Spring. And, and you know, states like Saudi Arabia really cracked down on dissent. Apparently, the level of repression is even worse now as MBS tries to force through these major changes, which for older Saudis are really quite anathema to their understanding of Islam or to the role that Saudi Arabia is supposed to play in the world as sort of this paragon of of Islamic morals and virtues. So all that to say that, yes, MBS is transforming certain aspects of public life in Saudi Arabia. Women are able to drive. Women are able to be out in public spaces in a way that they were not previously. But at the same time, he is also really cracking down on anyone who criticizes his project is very likely to end up in jail or worse. At this point, he retains support, again, among young Saudis, in part because he has made extreme promises to them in terms of employment, in terms of the investment that this new Saudi Arabia is supposed to attract. And it remains to be seen whether he will be able to make good on these promises. And if he is not able to do so, it is unclear how much longer he would retain this level of support that up to now he has enjoyed from from many younger Saudis. I'm speaking with Anel Shalini of the Quincy Institute in Washington. Now, what is the relationship with Islam, both as an ideology and also as institution? How dependent upon or close to Islam is the regime? Al-Saud's entire sort of legitimating narrative has to do with, historically had to do with their sort of ruling bargain with the descendants of Ibn Abdul Wahhab, who established this form of, of deeply conservative and quite intolerant form of Islam known as Wahhabism. Um, and so historically, the ruling clerical establishment backed up the decisions of the Al-Saud in part because the Al-Saud did maintain such a stringent and conservative form of Islam that, that was imposed legally on Saudi citizens. At this point, what we're observing is an effort to kind of rewrite history to to say that, no, no, it hasn't necessarily been about this shared ruling bargain with the clerics and the descendants of Ibn Abdul al-Wahhab, but instead the, to really centralize the al-Saud as the sole progenitors of the Saudi national project Certain things like, for example, the emphasis on Diriya, which was sort of the ruling seat of the Al-Saud, a historical site just outside Riyadh that has um, sort of been revitalized and made into something of a tourist attraction. Um, The Al-Saud are working to sort of centralize themselves and to sideline the clerics. So this is kind of a a myth-making and historical project that has also come through in things like textbooks and even the National Archives uh, have gone through an extensive project of of rewriting some of that history. At the same time, Islam does remain quite central um, because Saudi Arabia is the the location of the two holiest sites in Islam, Mecca and Medina. Millions of, of Muslims every year travel to Saudi Arabia to make Hajj and Umrah the pilgrimages to to Mecca and Medina. So the centrality of Islam is likely to continue. But at the same time, we are seeing efforts to re-articulate that role of Islam. Historically, the Saudis would have tried to sort of maintain their legitimacy by, by maintaining this most stringent form of Islam. And now they're trying to retroactively reframe that. MBS has said, you know, Saudi Arabia practices so-called moderate Islam. 
And the utility of that phrase is that it can kind of mean whatever whatever your he or anyone wants it to mean. And so in his case, this is starting to mean things like women playing a more public role, opening up Saudi Arabia to public um, entertainment, to cinema, having famous musicians, mostly from the United States, come to perform. So it is, it is a very specific rethinking of what Islam means. And MBS up to this point has been able to squash dissent from those who, who might challenge that. Why did they kill Khashoggi? I mean, he's a, not a serious threat to the regime, uh, and it certainly caused him a lot of image problems. What was the reasoning behind it? As you point out, he was not a real threat. And I assume that MBS may regret that decision or just given the headaches that it caused for him. But I, I do think part of it had to do with the fact that Khashoggi, as someone who had been quite close to the Saudi ruling establishment, who perhaps knew more than MBS felt comfortable with him knowing, but in particular, he was questioning this narrative that MBS was putting forward. MBS was trying to say that he's promoting moderate Islam, and he in particular blamed 1979 and the Iranian revolution as why the Saudis then felt it was necessary to adopt this more conservative form of Islam. And Hashogi had questioned some of that, essentially saying that Saudi Arabia had been pretty conservative prior to 1979, and that actually the event that occurred in 79 that really shifted things in the kingdom wasn't so much the Iranian revolution as the seizure of the Grand Mosque of Mecca by an extremist Saudi figure who wanted to overthrow the House of Saud. He and his followers took control of the holiest site in Islam and were eventually defeated and sentenced to death. This was really the main reason why we then did see Saudi Arabia adopting this much more conservative stance that goes against what MBS is trying to say, where he says he's trying to blame Iran and likewise also trying to blame the Muslim Brotherhood for the previous role that Islam had played in Saudi Arabia. And he's he's trying to convince Saudis and the world that this sort of true form of Saudi Islam is a much more moderate and, and tolerant form of Islam. On the economy, uh, they've been trying to diversify away from oil for as long as I can remember. How's that project going, if at all? <laughs> it remains a challenge. And one interesting thing we're likely to see more of is an increased rivalry with the UAE. Abu Dhabi and Dubai have been very effective in attracting investment and in positioning those two Emirates in particular as a business hub in the region, You know, a transport hub, an innovation hub. If you're a young, up-and-coming, would-be entrepreneur in the Middle East, you're, you're likely going to go to Dubai or maybe Abu Dhabi you're not as likely to go somewhere like Riyadh, in part just because of the kinds of regulations and restrictions that are still in place in Saudi Arabia. And this is part of why the UAE has been so successful at attracting investment. And so MBS would like Saudi Arabia to replace the UAE as the hub for entrepreneurship and investment in the region. And to that effect, he has required that any company that wishes to do business in Saudi Arabia must have its headquarters inside the kingdom, whereas at the moment, many of these big multinationals have headquarters in Dubai, some in Doha, in Qatar. Qatar has also, like the UAE, been, been pretty successful at, at positioning itself as a, a hub for investment. But as I said, MBS would like that role to be played by Saudi Arabia. The problem is that they're, they're decades behind. Um, you know, this, this project that the UAE and Qatar embarked upon is now several decades old to really make their economies attractive to investors um, as well as tourists. And so MBS is trying to play catch up and also trying to force companies, as I said, to, to headquarter there in Riyadh. It is not yet clear how effective that coercion is going to be. It's possible a multinational company might decide that they're going to build sort of a shadow headquarters in the kingdom in order to satisfy MBS while actually maintaining the real base of productions um, somewhere like Dubai. It is something that MBS has promised his people he will do, and his his legitimacy really rests on that, on creating much many more opportunities for his people, which is a much greater challenge. In these other small Gulf states, they have tiny populations and huge resources, and so it's not that hard to keep them satisfied. Whereas Saudi Arabia does have a much larger population, the standard of living in Saudi Arabia is much lower than in, in somewhere like Qatar or the UAE. And so if MBS is unable to achieve this Vision 2030, which is now 
seven years and a, and a couple months away, he could be facing uh, much more resistance to his rule and, and his, his projects. I've always wondered, what is the source of their um, leverage over the United States? I mean, the Saudis have to sell their oil, so I'm not quite clear on how that creates all that leverage. Um, is it the weapons sales? I recall uh, some Saudi official from the late 70s, early 80s saying, oh, you're arms dealers and we pay cash. Is that the source of, of the this mysterious magnetic hold that Saudi Arabia has over U.S. policy? Oil remains a huge aspect of the relationship. The U.S. economy, unfortunately, does remain dependent on fossil fuels. And although the U.S. since 2018 has been the world's largest producer of fossil fuels, we're once the largest, now second largest consumer of fossil fuels. So we remain quite in the thrall of countries like Saudi Arabia, who, as I said, are able to really control that price. Because as we've seen, you know, there's concern now that this could really throw off the midterm results, for example. So the fact that our whole democratic system can be dictated by something like the decision by a Saudi prince just indicates how vulnerable we remain to control by these oil producers. But you're very right to highlight arms manufacturer. The I think the, the line you gave from the, the Saudi minister is quite apt, which is, you know, the Saudis are our largest customer in terms of weapons and, and other national security products. And they do pay handsomely. And the military industrial complex in the United States is such that essentially every member of Congress does have an interest in keeping jobs in their districts. The big five weapons producers, companies like Boeing and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, they have been very strategic about locating their production facilities across the United States. And again, in, in essentially every member of Congress stands to lose if they vote against increases to the Pentagon budget, for example, or vote against a big arms sale. At the same time, it's something of a myth that these jobs could not be replaced by something else, or even that the weapons industry is such a great jobs producer. It is not actually as in terms of thinking about, you know, where the United States invests our money and our production capacity moving forward. A dollar spent to build a new uh, weapons facility, for example, is going to create significantly fewer jobs than a new hospital, for example, or new educational facilities or new energy facilities, as the U.S. does try to lessen all our dependence on fossil fuels and to finally try and get rid of this vulnerability. Although the weapons industry remains quite powerful, both in terms of dictating that relationship and in dictating a lot of U.S. foreign policy, there needs to be a lot more done to question this myth that it is inviolable or, or that there's no way to sort of reconsider U.S. industrial policy and that there, there really are better and, and more plentiful jobs in other industries. And finally, what's the status of the war in Yemen? So unfortunately, the six-month truce that had been in place in Yemen did expire. It was in place from April to October. And the narrative we're hearing is that it was the Houthi rebels that are the reason the truce failed. This is partly true, but it's not the whole story because under the, the terms of the truce, we were supposed to see much more oil getting into the, the areas that have been under a Saudi blockade. These are areas controlled by the Houthis. Also flights allowing people in Sana'a and, and other parts of northern Yemen that are controlled by the Houthis to get out, especially to seek medical care. While the Houthis did say they were not interested in, in re-upping the truce for another two months, it was partly because the truce was not being implemented in, a, in the way that they had been told it would be, again, in terms of sufficient oil to meet the needs of the population and more flights. And um, one of the major issues there also had to do with paying salaries. This, this remains an issue that is hugely important. You know, when we hear about the level of starvation in Yemen, it is not necessarily that there are no food resources. It is just that food is so expensive and almost no public salaries have been paid for years at this point. And so each side blames the other and says, look, you're responsible for, for paying these salaries. And, and the other side says, no, you are. And that's often where things break down. So we do continue to hear some optimism from, from various diplomats, people like Tim Lenderking, who's the U.S. Special Envoy for Yemen, saying that it's possible the truce could be reinitiated. 
this is very important and is kind of the first step because we did find that the population that was at risk of famine fell drastically during the time that the truce was in place. So indicating that these populations were able to access aid and other uh, food resources. But the fear is now that the truce has expired and we've seen less uptick in violence than we feared. But the, the concern is it's just a matter of time before that does start to tick back up. These people who are able to enjoy six months of peace will again be faced with violence and lack of resources and could again be facing starvation. That was Anel Shaleen, a research fellow specializing in the Middle East at the Quincy Institute in Washington. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Beethoven's variations in God Save the King, performed by Alfred Brendel, which is a setup for my next guest, James Meadway. Britain is in a political and economic crisis. The move by the new and soon-to-be former Prime Minister Liz Truss and her former Chancellor of the Exchequer to cut taxes on the rich in a preposterous attempt to stimulate growth was massively punished by the financial markets. She reversed course and appointed a new, more orthodox Chancellor, but the damage was done, and she was finished. James Meadway was an advisor to John McDonnell, who was Jeremy Corbyn's shadow chancellor of the Exchequer when he led the Labour Party. Meadway is now the director of the Progressive Economy Forum, which, in its own words, aims to advance policies that address the modern challenges of environmental breakdown, economic insecurity, social and economic inequalities, and technological change. We recorded this interview on Wednesday morning. Less than 24 hours later, Trust resigned after a day and an evening of political crisis. I asked James for a comment just after the resignation, and he said, Truss's rapid, record-breaking exit from office is partly a tribute to her own failings and partly about the institutional faults of the Tory party. But fundamentally, they are about the severe weaknesses of the British economy and the failure of both main parties to address them without collapsing into existential political crises. We have been living as a country on borrowed time with a dysfunctional version of capitalism that can produce high debts, public squalor, and obscene wealth for a few, but little else. Truss's tragedy, if she has one, is that she identified some of this, but her cures were potentially worse than the disease. It falls to Keir Starmer's labor to propose the comprehensive plan for reform they have so far shied away from. James Meadway. I read in the New York Times this morning that uh, the Conservative Party is now adopting labor policies to uh, an effort to right itself. Is that a fair characterization? If you take the, the one of the big, in fact, probably the biggest single U-turn that the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, the new Finance Minister, Jeremy Hunt, uh, announced is scrapping what, what was a very substantial amount of support for household energy bills for the next two years, the energy price guarantee. That was probably going to cost, it's very uncertain, about £150 billion over two years. And he's reduced that down to six months, which was basically Labour's proposal for saving money on it and trying to put something in place for this winter with a better scheme eventually. So so he's adopted that. The reversal of the planned cuts to corporation tax was a, a Labour demand, and that's now in place. The question of income tax at the top end, literally the top 1%, means people earning over £100,000 a year. Um, it's fairly sort of substantial list of things that he's gone through that Jeremy Hunt is now sort of attempting to taunt the Labour Party by saying, well, disagree with us on anything, really. Well, if you do what your opponents demand of you, then clearly there's going to be little difference on some key points of policy. But it's it's deeply humiliating for the Conservative Party and the government uh, and for the Prime Minister in particular. I mean, she has absolutely zero real authority uh, at this point. The way in which Jeremy Hunt's U-turn 
uh, was announced on Monday morning had that kind of, as people have pointed out, that sort of military coup feel about it. You have an emergency announcement, a televised address by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, basically saying whatever the Prime Minister said uh, a few weeks ago, in fact, even a few days ago, is now being undone and this is how the government will be run instead. So it's a very peculiar and chaotic situation with the government now kind of floating the fact that, oh, it anticipates very deep spending cuts to come in about a week's time. Uh, It keeps raising ideas on what this might look like and then backing away at the slightest sort of peep of opposition from either its own side or the Labour Party. There's not much room for spending cuts without really seriously cutting into uh, services, is there? That's the, the basic problem they're up against. There's two bits to this. One is that actually after after 10 years of austerity, 2010 through to 2019, Boris Johnson's prime minister did in fact take steps to uh, reverse spending cuts. He put more money into the system, even without COVID. He was doing this because he as conservative leader and the conservative party in general recognise a deep unpopularity of, of spending cuts on this scale. You, you just eat into things that, that even your own supporters start to notice that, that things aren't working properly. It's one thing to say, okay, we'll cut benefits for people who are disabled or people who uh, are unemployed. You know, Perhaps that's not going to affect your immediate constituency. But by the time the NHS is being run down, schools are, are, are reaching a, a really terrible state. Everybody notices. So they reversed austerity. But it does mean that the, both politically, there's actually not much they can do, uh, this government can do in terms of cuts without a bunch of even Conservative MPs, as they have done this week, jumping up and down and shouting about specific cuts, for instance, to pensions. It means that actually there's a basic sort of functioning of modern society point you get to where actually you do need the bins collected and government really is going to have to pay for this at some point. You're running up against some of these hard limits. So there's not very much to be found there. Having said that, the final bit is that, look, there's, there's a degree of expectations management going on. The, the situation is bad in terms of the fundamentals of the British economy. It's not so bad that the only possible route out of this is really, really hard austerity. I mean, that's just a sort of, one hand, it's an obvious Keynesian point. On the other hand, I think the government are well aware of this and they're talking up the extent of cuts to come so that it will look less bad when they eventually turn up in about a week's time. Let's go back to 2010 when David Cameron was cutting uh, and uh, imposing austerity. There was no good reason for it at that point, right? It was just this uh, – was, what was motivating that? Was just this uh, a mad ideological mission that the Tories were on? I tend not to think this. I think there's quite a, an easy sort of argument that if you're on the left, you go for, which is like, look, why are you doing this thing that is socially damaging, that is economically damaging? I mean, the British economy, however you want to look at it, is in a worse state than it would have been without austerity. I think this is broadly the consensus view by this point. You've damaged investment, you've damaged demand, growth has been low, wage growth has been particularly low, debts particularly for households being rising again, you just go through the list. So so it's damaged all of this, so why do you do it? And the, and the easy explanation is something like, well, it's ideology. These people just really don't like government and they'll hack away at it given uh, any opportunity. Probably the real explanation is something not quite like that because it's not just that the Conservatives decided to push for these cuts and that was something that the Conservative Party leadership in 2010 wanted to do and that there's a bunch of people on the Conservative Party benches who are actually ideological like this. This was something that the entire core state structure of the British state was pushing for. This was the austerity program was something dreamed up essentially by the Treasury, the finance ministry here. That there was in effect, although Labour don't like to talk about this, by 2010, there was a kind of cross-party consensus on needing to do austerity. The Bank of England throughout this entire time supported the program in effect by saying, okay, we'll just keep interest rates very low and do quantitative easing so the economy doesn't completely tank because you're doing austerity in this scale. And that was something that the Bank of England did. Now, actually, what happened in the last week is the Bank of England pulled the plug on the government. I mean, that's that's what Andrew Bailey, governor of the Bank of England, his extraordinary announcement last week that he'd remove support from the government bond markets and therefore risk crashing pension funds and financial market panic and all the rest of it. That was the Bank of England withdrawing support from the government. Uh, they didn't do that with austerity. So the core institutions of the British state all lined up to do this, which I think gets you into a question about, look, there's a strategy here about what kind of economy does the British state thinks it, it needs. And it, it tends to be one where actually we're really going to focus on what the financial service industry wants. And that means having a small state and plenty of room to pay for it if it trips over its own shoelaces like it did in 2008, that you want to clear some fiscal space, as they say. The people who've now 
kind of taken over the government in effect, Jeremy Hunt and the people around him are very much of that view. They're very, very closely tied to uh, the financial services industry, the Economic Advisory Council that Jeremy Hunt has just announced to set up, a bunch of four or five economists entirely drawn from financial services in various different forms, people from hedge funds, people from asset managers, someone from the Bank of England. Absolutely no other part of the economy gets a look in. So it's very clear where they're coming from, where this sort of faction is coming from. The difference now is that I think the broad consensus about austerity has shifted. Broadly, you'd be hard pushed to find many economists who'd sign up to this. You'll be hard pushed to even find Tory MPs who'll say, yeah, loads of austerity, let's do it. And internationally, if you look at what the IMF has said or Joe Biden has said in passing about what the government's been doing, you're not finding that much support for the idea that spending cuts and very tight fiscal policy is the way to go at this point in time. What about the monetary side? We've seen here some Wall Street interests, BlackRock, notable among them, complaining about the Fed's tightening policy. A lot of financial interests got really rich off easy money. Where does the city of London stand on that question? Well, the, the difficulty there is the same difficulty that, that basically every other economy has uh, when the, the Fed started its, its really quite rapid uh, turn in, into tightening over the last year or so. Once the Federal Reserve starts lifting its interest rate, there's a great amount of pressure in every other, particularly large economies, I say large, it's everybody, but notably in the larger economies to, to also lift their interest rates, because otherwise you find that your, your currencies start to tank, that, that there's a big rush towards the dollar and dollar assets, because this is where the returns are. Every other central bank finds itself under pressure to also lift interest rates. So that's been part of the pressure in the Bank of England for, for the last year or so, even before actually uh, Christmas last year, you start to see it happening. That's the pressure to raise interest rates there. There's then also the, the need, as the Bank of England sees it, when confronted by persistently high inflation to say, well, we've got a big inflation lever, we must pull in it. The bit that the Bank of England has also thrown in to complicate things slightly, and this is where it's probably out of line with other major central banks, is an attempt to reverse quantitative easing, to do quantitative tightening. So to instead of uh, buying bonds, you're selling bonds back into the market and, and reducing the amount of money flowing around the system at that point in time. So it's quite a tight setting that they're trying to get onto. Uh, and it's provoking real market eruptions. I mean, there's at least one explanation for what has happened around the British economy in financial markets and with some of the fragilities that have been revealed, particularly in pension funds in Britain, that at least some of this is a product or a byproduct of quantitative tightening, that these sort of tighter monetary policies and the way it affects yields uh, of different assets uh, up and down the curve is having this kind of shock effect on what's otherwise a really quite a fragile system that's been built up around the idea that interest rates are going to stay low pretty much forever. So, so that's the fragility that's being revealed. That's why the Bank of England intervened two, two weeks ago. You had British pension funds faced with this extraordinary rise in uh, yields on, on British government bonds after this mini-budget sort of disaster uh, from the Chancellor, the then-Chancellor on the 23rd of September. This knocked over all the fairly complex stuff they were doing to try and manage their uh, funds in times of low interest rates. It knocks them for six, and uh, the Bank of England was forced to intervene to stop pension funds becoming insolvent. So there's a great deal of financial fragility that's been revealed around this, that tightening from the Fed, turning into tightening from the Bank of England, is starting to expose some of the mess that's built up under cover of very, very loose monetary policy. I've been struck by uh, how it really didn't take a very long period of rising interest rates and to levels that are really quite low by historical standards, especially if you look at real rates, to uh, unleash some havoc. It makes me wonder, you know, what does this reveal about the underlying structural weaknesses of both the US and British economies? It seems like there's a lot of rot underneath it that was hidden by a long period of easy money. Yeah, exactly. And this is precisely what's happened. The British economy, more than the American, to, to just be quite blunt, it, this is a place that for a very, very long period of time has been essentially relative to sort of developed country peers. It's been a low investment economy. It's a low growth economy. It's a low productivity economy. It's a low wage growth economy, very dramatically. So if you look at what's happened to sort of living standards over the last 10 years, that has also made it a high debt economy, especially in the private sector. And most strikingly, and I think this is the bit that's the, the real underlying sort of bind in what government can do, it has this huge external deficit. We import, as everybody in Britain is, is rapidly finding out, uh, really very, very large amounts of essentials for modern life. Natural gas for energy, Britain imports about half the natural gas it uses. So it's really exposed to whatever happens in natural gas markets across Eurasia. That's been very apparent over last year. And if you look at the inflation figures today, where the headline has gone back up to 10.1%, but that's been driven by food price inflation. And of course, we import about half the food that we eat. So it's big international factors that feed in there. So it's extremely exposed 
to what happens in the rest of the world in a really kind of fundamental way. And it's been able to get through this through reliance on exactly, as you say, cheap, very easy money, which has distorted the economy in all sorts of ways. So it has not turned into lots of investment in basically productive activity uh, across most of the country. I mean, this is why you have these huge regional inequalities, but it has turned into lots of investment uh, and rising asset prices, particularly in property, particularly in London uh, property. I mean, that's what quantitative easing has really helped prop up for the last 10 years or so. So it's a complete mess. And once you start to unwind it, it's a Warren Buffet thing, isn't it? Once the tide goes out, you see who's who's been standing naked in, in the sea. Uh, it's, it's very much that sort of thing. I'm speaking with James Meadway, director of the Progressive Economy Forum. Uh, what's the contribution of Brexit? Less so than, than a bunch of people seem to think, I'd say, at this point in time. For a simple reason that, look, if you're talking about austerity, it's 10 years of austerity. Uh, if you're talking about neoliberalism more generally, this is like 40 years of sort of low investment, low wage, lots of debt uh, way of running the economy. Whereas if you're talking about Brexit, you're talking like two years really since we left the EU. There's a bit bit of an impact before that as people kind of adjust what they're doing around the expected exit. But that's the that's the extent of the impact. So it has had definitely had some short term effects. I mean, inflation is somewhat higher in Britain because of some difficulties with Brexit, but it's not on the same scale as a decade's worth of spending cuts, particularly if you're just looking at the pure sort of economics of this, particularly capital spending cuts, very, very low rates of public investment, meaning that infrastructure across the country, certainly outside of London, where we've got a lovely new underground line built in the last few years. But if you go to the rest of the country, it's creaking trains. It's now the threat this winter of power cuts and blackouts um, because we've got rid of much of the gas storage that we used to have because we're trying to save money on things like storing gas. It's it's just a bit of a car crash underneath all of that. That all predates Brexit. Brexit's there as a factor. The, the deal that we've eventually got to with the European Union does have an economic impact and it does have economic consequences, particularly around export industries and trade. But it's relatively short term and it's not cumulative in quite the same way that a decade of austerity has been. Something else that seems to be um, operating is a crisis in the political class and the crisis of leadership, the quality of leadership. Cameron, with his crazy austerity program, made no sense. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the forgettable Theresa May, and then the amusing but disastrous Boris Johnson, and now Liz Truss, who seems like the dime store of Thatcher. What's happening with the British elite? That's the other bit. And this is where the, the, there are potentially arguments around Brexit and why it happened and what it's done and, and how it's shaken up, how, how the British elite operate, is that you end up with a, with a, an extraordinarily small number of people. It's always been the case in Britain, to be honest, but a very small number of people who are largely all know each other and all kind of agree with each other with some sort of slightly odd distinctions, but not very much in it. Uh, and a real unwillingness to confront some of the structural problems uh, that are there in the economy. I mean, you had with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, particularly with uh, John McDonnell as, as the shadow chancellor, a plan to address those structural problems. And actually, it was a plan to sort of modernise British capitalism, make it a bit more higher investment, a bit less dependent on debt, a bit more sort of industrially focused and actually a relatively sensible set of things to do that would move Britain more towards a productive Northern European average. I mean, that's where it looks like. Now, this is greeted with utter hysteria from certain quarters. Like, this is, these are things that you can never contemplate. So there's a fairly sort of deep institutional rot the system can't really think about making radical changes. Interestingly enough, actually, and Boris Johnson, the much maligned Boris Johnson, I think had a good sense of this in his own manner, in that he did propose ending austerity, more investment, deal with regional inequalities, uh, lots of scientific research spending. We're going to push for green investment. I mean, this, this is actually not a ridiculous plan for how you might reform British capitalism. Now, for, for all sorts of reasons, it wasn't able to carry out uh, this plan. It wasn't, hasn't been able to do it. And that, of course, is, again, this institutional failure. So the institutional quality of, of British capitalism looks quite weak, with, I would say, one real exception, which is the Bank of England is still uh, and has been able through more than a decade of successive crises, global financial crisis, Brexit, coronavirus, has been able to act as the one institution with the credibility and the authority able to step in when things are going wrong otherwise. And they've kind of asserted that authority, like I said, in the last week or so. I think we talked earlier about uh, Johnson and um, his free spending ways, possibly really remaking the political landscape, putting a lot of investment to, into um, poorer regions in the north, for example. Did anything come of that or was that just rhetoric? 
I mean, Johnson did did and has increased um, government spending that, that's, uh, across a range of different things. As soon as he became prime minister, he, he claimed to have always been opposed to austerity. And he claims lots of things. But he did immediately increase spending on schools because this is one of the things that very strikingly, I mean, one of the main drivers, somewhat under, under-reported or under-considered of Labour's surge in the vote was a large number of people with, frankly, uh, school-aged children, particularly young school-aged children who could see what was happening to schools and were going to vote for someone who said, we're going to spend money in schools. So one of the first things he did was more money for schools, more money for the NHS, more money for police, like big, obvious, fluffy public spending, but he did it. And then after the first sort of waves of coronavirus had died off, there was further rounds of increase in spending across government departments, so kind of an actual end to austerity, not enough to really undo the damage of like a decade of cuts, but it was there. The problem he's had is, is getting some of the investment spending out of the door and actually delivered to the rest of the country. There's been a lot of talk especially from Boris Johnson, about levelling up and about all the difference it's going to make once all this lovely investment funding starts flowing. It's not really happened, certainly not on anything like the scale that Johnson, who is never inclined to talk something down if he, if he could talk it to the skies, uh, has suggested. So that's not really happened. And then it starts to turn into a real political problem for the Tories, because having promised this stuff to a whole bunch of places that went conservative for the first time in 2019, no, to be clear, a lot of these sort of former Labour heartlands have been drifting conservative for a very long period of time, certainly since uh, Tony Blair was prime minister. But they went conservative and they elected conservative MPs for the first time in 2019. It's just turning around saying to all of them, well, you know, everything we told you then, that was kind of wrong. Here's a different programme. Here's more cuts. Here's more austerity. Th- those places, and the polling tells you this, are not going to be voting conservative again anytime soon. The kind of high-risk Tory strategy that Boris Johnson had, high-risk but actually reasonably sensible in keeping the Tories as a governing party and getting British capitalism to work somewhat more rationally, uh, has been junked. And now you get this, this sort of ridiculous George Osborne 2.0, austerity 2.0 effort from uh, Jeremy Hunt. It, it doesn't feel like the conditions of 2010 where Cameron can arrive in office with George Osborne, his Chancellor of the Exchequer, by his side saying, we're going to do loads of austerity and win the public and wider elite support for it. That, that situation isn't there. So there's no obvious rescue plan out of this. There's no obvious sort of sense of direction or strategy, even for the next two years coming from the Conservative Party. Meanwhile, what's up with the Labour Party? I mean, uh, they're certainly doing well in the polls, but uh, Keir Starmer is hardly an inspiring leader. And what sort of alternative agenda would they uh, propose at this point? It's starting to appear. I think it's been a long time coming. Uh, and actually, if you if you look at their conference, uh, Labour Party conference a few weeks ago, I mean, some of this is just context, that this is straight after the, the fiscal event, the mini budget uh, of the 23rd of September, the pound uh, tanking, the government collapsing in the opinion polls. It was just perfect circumstances. But it was, in pure sort of party management terms, a good conference for Labour. And coming out of it, you had a, a, a reasonably solid set of proposals focused on how you would develop a, a version of green capitalism, in effect. So a publicly owned energy generating company focused on delivering very rapid decarbonisation. Some very good proposals, I thought, about setting up a sovereign wealth fund with the proceeds from this, so government taking shares in new companies and, and renewables and all the rest of it across co- across the country, some pledges on increasing taxes, some good promises around more council houses. This is social public housing uh, to be built from, from other shadow cabinet ministers. This is all good stuff. The, the, the problem that the Labour Party is running into is that I, I think the people running it have an idea in their heads that you just sort of do a Tony Blair, you do a 1997. But Blair was elected on the back of an economy that was growing in Britain in and basically a world, the start of the, the world economic boom at the end of the, the 1990s into the 2000s. I mean, credit driven and all the other problems, but it was there and it was real. It was completely benign circumstances. Uh, whereas if you're looking at let's say the election at the very latest is going to be 2024. Legally, it has to be at the end of 2024, maybe early 2025 at a pinch. What the British economy is going to look like then, I think is going to be a complete train wreck. What the world economy is going to look like then is not really going to be much better. So all these grand promises and pledges that Labour's making, £28 billion a year for green investment, this sort of thing, it's not going to be in this sort of high growth, low interest rate environment of, of everybody's dreams that 1997 offered. It's going to be something very, very different. And either they get serious about how they're going to pay for some of these grand promises, because they are starting to make these now. And that means wealth taxation, taxing the rich, doing something serious on redistribution, or they immediately start cutting back on all these promises and it all turns into, oh dear, oh dear, the economy's tank, we can't do anything. 
rather than what they should do, which is the economy's tanked. This is exactly the moment when you have to do something different. The risk with the Starmer leadership is they take what will look like the path of least resistance, but is a recipe for you know, continued set of disasters, uh, as we've seen with this uh, Conservative government. You know, we've been talking for a long time about the crisis of neoliberalism. That the damn zombie is finally going to collapse. Is this it? Has it finally come? Uh, they're calling time on neoliberalism? Or um, do you think uh, that's uh, a bit too optimistic? I think it's too optimistic to say this is dead and it's over. I mean, it's also too optimistic because you know, God knows what you get instead of neoliberalism. Uh, a sort of authoritarian, state-inclined capitalism is not a particularly pleasing prospect uh, for anyone on the left at this point in time. If it's you know, things being set up to preserve this continual transfer of wealth to the top of society, which you know we've actually seen state intervention on a significant scale that has produced that just in the last few years. This is what happened in the pandemic. That's not a particularly happy prospect. But in terms of like, is this like neoliberalism? Well, let's see what happens with the Hunt government. My, my own guess is that this attempt to revert to some sort of neoliberal norms, its austerity, its financial services first, this is the British version of what latter-day neoliberalism looks like. Well, it's running into serious resistance, even from the Conservative Party at this point in time, to say nothing of what happens outside of the Tories with the you know, rising number of strikes, protests, the huge campaign. Uh, of non-payment of, of electricity bills, energy bills, that is really what pushed the government into having to intervene on this. That's all there. And it's not necessarily the case that whatever Jeremy Hunt says in Parliament, or even outside of Parliament, is what is, they're going to get through uh, on the ground. And in reality, I, I think they're going to find it extremely hard to make a, a return to neoliberalism. And actually, you, you have, I mean, it's quite dramatic when the IMF turns around and says to a government, as the British government was a couple of weeks ago, saying, we're going to cut taxes uh, for the rich. We're going to deregulate everything we can. We're getting rid of the cap and bankers' bonuses. We think finance is great. This is super-duper neoliberalism. And the IMF turns around and says, this isn't such a great idea. And then the US government turns around and says, not such a great idea, chaps, don't do this. The international context has shifted quite hard uh, against this way of running the world. Uh, In addition to the domestic political context, I think works quite hard against it. But they are going to push this and they are setting up an argument to say, we can do austerity. It's back to the 2010s. That was all right, really. Probably somewhere down the line, and this is what all the, the more Brexity people would say, is that there'll, there'll be an effort to try and rejoin the, the European Union. You can certainly see that uh, starting to emerge as, as a question over the next few years as the crisis worsens. It looks like a, a relatively easy option to immediately resolve a set of some of the shorter term problems in the British economy. That was James Meadway, director of the Progressive Economy Forum. That's Progressive Economy Forum, all one word, dot com on the web. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, Anna Calls from the Arctic, a teaser song from Stump Work, Dry Cleaning's new album, which will be released in full on Friday, October 21st. Nothing works, everything's expensive and opaque and privatized. Indeed. Till next week, bye. Sporting direct, so vague and formless. They called him Central Steve for a reason, of course. Thank God.